News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Welcome to episode 48 of the Luke Macias Show. We've got a really fun conversation coming to you today, so I'm going to give you a very brief intro. First of all, fake news stops here. Don't all of you want this mug? Like this is, and you've heard me, I don't know, several episodes ago, I interviewed Brad Johnson. He's a reporter at the Texan. I had a conversation with Drew White and Connie Burton when they first launched the Texan, which you can find at thetexan.news. And this is just fantastic journalism. And in an age when we know that the media conglomerate is incredibly biased towards against conservatives and have a left-wing bent to them, We've got to sign up and support and engage and pay for real news. Fake news stops here. You can get this mug if you buy this by the end of the year. So you have to go to the Texan.news. You have to sign up as a subscriber. It's like $9 a month. I pay it. My wife and I pay. We read the Texan. We get the emails. They send a weekly blast. They can send you breaking news. And it's all focused on Texas. So when my friends reach out to me and say, how do I stay up to date? I give them a couple different things to do. But one of the things I tell them to do is to go to the Texan.news and sign up. You can follow them on Facebook and Twitter and do all that so that you can be up to date on what's going on in our state. And they have real journalists that actually report things from right-of-center perspectives, but they report it down the middle. So you'll get both sides of the issues, and you know that this is real news. So if you want this mug, you got to go to the Texan.news. I'm going to read you really quickly because Josh Hammer is one of our participants in today's conversation. And here's what he said about the Texan. He was ticked off about the Austin American Statesman article they wrote against my congressman, Chip Roy. And he said, I think that the Austin American Statesman's vile, smearing, outrageous bias, straight up lying, and gross unprofessionalism all demonstrate exactly why outlets like the Texan News are so desperately needed. So that's Josh. And if you listen to him and agree with him today, you probably then should go to the Texan News and sign up before the end of the year. So that being said, Today's conversation is with Heath Mayo and Josh Hammer, and um, some of y'all will know who those two individuals are, but essentially, um, I like putting Heath, I don't want to, you know, he'll speak for himself during this conversation, but I put him with kind of the David French or Bill Crystals of the world who are, uh, you know, proclaimed conservatives who also uh, oppose our president, President Donald Trump. And then you have Josh Hammer, who I think is also a principled conservative who takes um, a different approach. And so we really have a conversation about what conservatism is, what the biggest threat to conservatism is, and then how these different perspectives and worldviews uh, diverge. And so I think you'll enjoy the conversation conversation that's had. I say so in the middle of the conversation, but I probably lean more towards the Josh Hammer side of this conversation. I tried to be somewhat even-handed in the way I had that conversation, but I'm really grateful for both of those individuals, uh, for both Heath and Josh being willing to come on our show. And without further ado, let's get straight to that conversation. Well, I am joined today by two Texans, one by birth and one by choice, uh, here to discuss um, some national issues that are facing our nation. And I'm really grateful that Heath uh, Mayo and Josh Hammer uh, have decided to join me today. I'm going to give you a quick little background on both of them. Heath uh, grew up in East Texas and uh, works... um, 
in, I guess it's private equity, is that correct? Uh, or management consulting. Management consulting. And um, is a uh, voice and somebody who I think gained a little bit of notoriety when you decided to not participate in CPAC, correct? And started your organization or, you know, quasi-organization called Principles First. Is that correct? That's right. And so, um, and then Josh is um, a, uh, you know, lecturer with the Federalist Society and editor-at-large of The Daily Wire and uh, of Council at First Liberty. Did I get all that correct? You got it all correct. There you go. And so y'all have, um, and, and I won't speak for you. I think you're going to each kind of take a position, but you have slightly different perspectives. Some would say maybe significantly different perspectives on, um, you know, what it means to be a conservative. And so I wanted to have this conversation. And so Josh, you're based here in Dallas now, right? You moved here and Heath uh, is somebody who's currently not in Texas, but definitely from Texas. And so, um, why don't we just start out with, uh, Josh, you tell us one, uh, a little bit of your background, anything I missed, and then why you are engaged in the way you are, and then what it means to be conservative, in your opinion. Sure, yeah. No, thanks so much, Luke. This is, uh, I'm sure it'll be a polite and fruitful and hopefully uh, energetic and lively discussion. Yeah. Um, so, just, I, uh, sure, I'll, I'll expound on bio just a little bit real quick. Um, I'm an attorney by training, obviously, as the Up Council title probably gives away. Went to uh, Duke for my undergraduate, University of Chicago for law school, um, I, I've been involved with any number of conservative causes over the years. I once interned for Mike Lee on San Judiciary Committee. While in law school, I was heavily involved with the uh, Ted Cruz presidential campaign. Um, I've interned for the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C. Um, you know, the, the list can go on. But, yeah. the, uh, but, but the point is I'm a, an attorney by training, worked in big law for about a year and a half, moved from Houston to Dallas, actually, to quit big law and then clerk for Judge Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals for mm -hmm. the Fifth Circuit, one of the president's first two Fifth Circuit nominees, along with Austin-based Judge Willett. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful clerkship. And basically, during my clerkship, I was really trying to think, um, what could I do post-clerkship to maximize two goals? There were two goals that I was most thinking about as far as what I could do in terms of my career. The first goal that I had in mind was how best to bring us back to our founding principles and conserve this wonderful, wonderful experiment that we have here in the United States of America. And the second goal that I had was what can I best do to best ensure the health, safety, security, and prosperity of the Jewish people in the Jewish state, because I am a proud Jew and a proud Zionist. Mm. So I ultimately embarked on this present career path, uh, editor-at-large for Daily Wire. Ben Shapiro is a close friend and uh, mentor of mine, obviously my boss as well. Uh, so can't uh, take off the guy who signs my paychecks. Uh, <laughs> of counsel, so I, I lawyer now on the side doing uh, religious liberty litigation, both mm -hmm. statutory and constitutional work for First Liberty Institute. We are a the, the largest law firm exclusively dedicated to defending religious liberty, I believe is how we tag ourselves. Okay. Um, so that's the bio, okay. Yep. What is conservatism? Hard segue. Um, great question, obviously I think a lot of people can, can disagree on the answer. To me, conservatism, it, it, by definition, the word conservatism, you're talking about conserving a culture, okay? So uh, the, the term conservatism perhaps is idiosyncratic, and it might be applied in a different nation state to mean a different thing. For me, in the, uniquely con in the unique context of America, what conservatism means is ultimately, I would say, the conservation of the founder's vision. And the founder's vision, I think, was a, was a social and political order ultimately oriented towards what I would say – uh, is probably above all else justice, justice and Aristotelian human flourishing, probably above all else. That was what the founders were seeking to do in crafting this wonderful ex experiment of ours. Um, they were seeking, and so I think the mission for conservatives in the 21st century is to conserve this vision and to ultimately 
try and orient our social, legal, and political order towards human flourishing and justice. Um, in terms of more concrete terms, if you're looking for a kind of like a two or three part definition, kind yeah. of like a Justice Stephen Breyer eight part balancing test almost, if you're looking for that, um, I think Irving Kristol actually had it basically right. He said that conservatism entails nationalism, religion, and economic growth. I think from there you can get a lot of things. Economic growth, obviously, deeply conducive to human flourishing, religion, you kind of get that kind of Burke and Kirkian traditionalism in there, mm -hmm. and nationalism. What What is conservatism if not trying to conserve an idiosyncratic and unique culture, um, particularly one that is unique to that nation state? So that's how nationalism gets in there as well. Okay. So, Heath, a little bit of your background, and then what is conservatism? Sure. Um, well, first, thank you for having me on this podcast. I've yep. listened to a couple, and, and the, the conversations that you're starting are really great. So thank you for including me. Um, my background, uh, as you said, born and raised in East Texas, mm -hmm. uh, went away uh, to college, uh, played baseball at Brown, and then went to law school um, after that. Uh, so I'm also legally trained lawyer by training, um, but, but, and, and doing management consulting, um, yep. at the moment, uh, and, and hopefully we'll practice law after that. Um, but born and raised in Texas and, you know, I also have, you know, been involved in and around the, the conservative movement, the Republican party, uh, you know, since I graduated from high school, um, interned for Louis Gohmert, my congressman, and uh, my senator, John Cornyn. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, have done things here and there um, around the side, as just activism, engaging at mm -hmm. the grassroots. That's where my passion is, engaging people in conversations around uh, chips and salsa at, at restaurants. That's what Principles First has done over this past year or so. And you mentioned that we, we didn't go to CPAC. And I think in part over a, a concern about what conservatism is today. I think a lot of the people that uh, came to our initial meetups uh, that, that last March, I guess, around CPAC were sort of concerned that we weren't talking about what it means to be conservative, that we were all sort of just marching in line about behind politicians or people instead of those principles. Uh, and so that's the conversation that I'm passionate about. That's why uh, I'm here today to have this conversation. I think it is a timely one and an important one. Now, as to the answer, yep. um, I agree with uh, a lot of the goals that Josh mentioned uh, in terms of restoring the founder's vision, um, also protecting the Jewish people. I think that's incredibly important. I think, uh, though, I, I think where I would say that conservatism to me is conserving, yes, it has to conserve something, but it's conserving the, the, the post-enlightenment liberal tradition that the founders uh, meant to enshrine, that they, they, they spoke to so, so prophetically in the Declaration of Independence that we're all created equal and that are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Um, and, and I think government exists to protect those rights, the negative rights um, that we each hold to be free, to think freely, to speak freely, to start a business if we want to, to worship how we feel that we need to. So I'm a conservative because I, I, I want to conserve that tradition, and I'm skeptical of government's ability to, to force or shape uh, a culture, any, any one particular culture. And I'm a little bit nervous when uh, conservatives start to talk about using the government to create a particular version of culture that resonates with us. I think conservatives have long been effective, uh, and what attracted me to conservatism was this idea of neutral principles, that we're actually fighting for the rights enshrined in the Constitution, and we're fighting for everyone's right, whether we agree with them or not, to speak and worship and do uh, whatever they, whatever they uh, can within the confines mm -hmm. of a sort of 
structured legal order that protects yeah. us from each other. So, Keith, what do you think, with that kind of definition, what do you think is the biggest threat to conservatism today? Who, what? What, what is it? Yeah, so I don't, I don't think in terms of who so much. I, I'm very much focused on the what we believe. And I, and I think, honestly, that is a, a big threat to conservatism at the moment is conservatives, I, you know, even at the grassroots level, it's sort of hard because people will ask, you know, are you supporting Trump? Are you supporting X person or Y person? And I, I think as, if it gets to that point where conservatism is about who you support instead of what you believe – I think we're going to lose sort of the meat and potatoes of what it means to be a conservative. So so what is the biggest threat to conservatism? Yeah, I, I think what is the biggest threat, I think, in terms of the degradation of identifying with who it is that you're supporting and that being the marker of conservatism, but then also the what you believe. I think as you look out across the, the right right now, it isn't clear what we believe. And to the extent that there are some things, I, I think – the right now is sort of seeping into some of the left-wing talking points about, you know, you, you know, wealth made in society is sort of ill-begotten, that there's this elite mogul of people who have been successful that are sort of making their money on the backs of, of, of the poor and that it's an exploitative economy and that there's something inherently immoral about free markets and free choice. Um, th- that, to me, I'm concerned about as I see that in conversations on the right. Um, and so... Th- those two things generally is what I would say. Okay, and I want to just synthesize those down to to a sure. sentence or yeah, two, that was a little bit. and then I'll I'll get over to Josh. Yeah. So what what so in in your opinion what what is the threat? Is the threat that there were the the threat is the uh, talking points that we're using of the left and the forgetting of free market principles or what what what's yeah the I think I think threat, threat number one. We're getting away as conservatives from talking about ideas, and we're okay. talking more about politicians that okay. we identify with. Threat number two, uh, conservatives willing to uh, give power to the government to define a specific culture and enshrine it. Okay. In increasing the powers of the government because we agree with those controlling the levers. Got it. Those are the two core ones that I would say. Josh, what's what's the biggest threat we've got? Yeah, I'll be much more succinct. I think the biggest threat to conservatism – it's pretty straightforward nowadays. I mean, the biggest threat to conservatism is synonymous with the biggest threat to America because conservatism, by definition, is just trying to conserve the founder's vision of what America is, ought, and should be. And the biggest threat to conservatism in the year 2019 to me is pretty clearly the political left. It is a is a post-2016, post-Kavanaugh, revanchist, hegemonic, would-be authoritarian left that seeks not just to gain the levers of political power, but is seeking to wield the levers of cultural power and in Hollywood, the Fortune 500, academia, the media, across all the various and sundry Tocquevillian media institutions to not just criticize us and tell us that we're wrong, but to forcibly evict us from the public square and say that, our, that we are racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes who don't deserve a place in public. And the left that wants to literally take us out of the public square, barely short, I would say, of killing us. And we oftentimes do see them resorting to violence. I mean, does anyone remember the ICE facility in Washington State where, like, the Antifa guy tried to bomb it? I mean, like, they... They they want us out, okay? Mm-hmm. It's just a question of how. And to me, that is hands down the biggest threat to conservatism right and, now. And, and I would say, look, I don't think we'll find any disagreement at the table around whether whether the left's vision is, is yep. something that we should adopt or if that's that, – I think that's well, unquestionably I, I, I a threat to conservatism. I don't think that's what Josh saying. So, so let's – I do want to fo- find distinctions and differences though. So, so to right. that extent, yeah, I mean those were two very different answers, right, as far as what the biggest threat was. So what – what would your 
case be for the threats that you see rising to a higher level than the threats that Josh just articulated? Well, I mean, I think what are the things that you can take action on, right? I mean, I think we have to be strong and united behind a certain vision that we're, I mean, ultimately winning that battle uh, has to do with convincing a, a slice of the electorate right in the center, right? We can, we, can, we can throw fires and say that the left wants to kill us <laughs> all, all we want. I would disagree with painting in such broad strokes. But, but, but I guess what I'm saying is it's more important to me, at least, to align what our message is that we're selling to the American people as conservatives, because I think it's confused right now. And if we don't have that clear message, then we're going to lose that, the, the, the bigger, important battle. We're going to lose it. And who is con- who are the people confusing it? Is it every politician? Is it particular? Like, who's confusing this message? And what's the message that isn't being articulated? Well, I, I mean, I think the biggest debate right now on the right is sort of this Amari versus French sort of common good conservative versus rights-based conservatives. That's, I, that, is a, that is a debate within conservatism, and I think, and, it, and, and to the extent that common good conservatives, I would, I would argue, have sort of been elevated in power. I mean, I think that Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, the current Republicans in power in Congress are sort of, they're, they're willing to use the levers of government to, to, to realize their ends regardless of how, how, how limited the government may be as a result. I mean, they're raising the national debt to $23 trillion. They're unilaterally issuing executive orders that conservatives would have been just going nuts over when Obama did it, right? I mean, there, there are so many things that Trump has done that the Republicans have done in Congress where conservatives have sort of rationalized, I guess, because, oh, well, they have an R next to their name. We agree with them. So, you know, I guess it's okay because we can trust them. They're not a Democrat. And if, and if, our, if our governing philosophy as conservatives is just let's go get the left, then that's okay. There's not going to be any way to hold the Republicans accountable once they get in power because they did it. They beat the left, right? We don't have a good argument to hold anyone accountable at that point. Josh? Um, it seems to me that Heath is strawmanning a lot. I mean, I don't really understand anyone. No one in my circles talks about Trump as the be-all, end-all, what it means to be a conservative in the year 2019. Those people are exceedingly rare. That is just not the focal point of any viable discussion that I'm a part of. I, I agree that the Amari French debate is a that that is the central intellectual debate on the right right now. Um, I happen to think there is a very prudent middle ground of sorts. It seems to me fully reconcilable the notion that we can advance justice, common good, human flourishing themed public policy argumentation, so long as that public policy argumentation is cabined within the framework of the Declaration and Constitution's uh, establishment or securing of, yeah. of negative liberty. I'm going to write that column tomorrow, actually, as a preview. I, or, I'm not sure this podcast is actually coming out. You will have I will have yes. written it already. Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, both Saurabh and David are uh, personal friends, so I have no animosity towards either. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can flush that out a little yeah, more. Yeah, and I, I've watched the Amari French discussion, and I, I understand the per, that a lot of people have the perspective that they, there are these two kind of competing forces. I, I don't... What I'm trying to understand, even within that discussion, is... Are and and David and and Heath could be put in one category of those who are are openly more critical of Donald Trump, right? But but I don't. Safe to say, I have a harder time seeing that being all the right space people, and then all the people that uh, believe that supporting the president based on the job he's done are all. Uh, human flourishing general. Does that make sense? Like, I don't know that that's the dividing line or do you see that being a dividing line? Because I'd be really interested in that because 
the yeah, one thing I question. took away from that discussion was I didn't know that I go, okay, so if you're on the French side of this discussion, yeah. you therefore don't support the president. And if you're here, you're voting for the president for re-election. Does yeah, that no, make sense? That's, that's completely fair. I think that completely makes sense. And I, I, I guess what I would say to that is that I guess I would argue that as soon as you start to say, you know what, I'm okay with government uh, doing some things that might be more expansive than what is set down mm -hmm. in the Constitution and getting more intrusive into people's lives to sort of uh, get rid of decisions that I don't like that I mm -hmm. think are morally wrong, you're going to be able to rationalize uh, some of the things that Trump does mm -hmm. that you might probably, you would argue against on procedural, constitutional, limited government grounds if it were a Democrat. So I... And do you have anything to say to that, Josh? And then, because I've got a no, go for, it, go for it. Well, my my. So there was a question I had, um, and I guess I'm trying to think of how to how to bring these two points together. So I I saw a lot of those same criticisms during the George W. Bush presidency. I mean, you could argue the same thing when it comes to somebody who greatly grew government, significantly increased our national debt, but I'm not seeing the same people that are being critical of Trump also having had a long, consistent history of also equally criticizing past Republicans. But that gets me to kind of the question I was I was thinking in the back of my mind. So is, is Trump the... Re, was Trump the result of the Republican establishment's longtime control and failure to deliver conservative principles that we really hold? Or was he like a phenomenon that popped up out of nowhere and then therefore we've got to figure out how to deal with him as a person? Does that make, and I'm trying to flesh that question out better, so I hope y'all can at least follow, follow along with me a little bit. But to me, if, if he's somebody that just popped out, he had this new message and it, you know, basically just covered the entire Republican Party and people liked it. And now all of a sudden we're dealing with what do we believe? Mm -hmm. Or was he a reaction? Was he kind of a symptom to a problem of the Republican establishment having control of our party for so long on a national level and not delivering on the principles? Right. So which one do you think he was? I, I would like to believe and I hope that he was a reaction to the failure of establishment Republicans to deliver on the principles that we've all held. Now, mm -hmm. in the process of that, yep. in this sort of, you know, unleashing of that yes. antagonism and angst yes. at, at the Republican establishment, I think the concern is losing the frustration. Because what I the, the the support for Donald Trump now isn't meeting out into the realization of those principles. I mean, the Tea Party response to the G GOP establishment was about constitutional government, mm -hmm. limited executives. Yep. We want to get rid of executive orders. We want to reduce the national debt. None of those concerns make up what is motivating the 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 really fervent Donald Trump supporter. Yep. And when you have that conversation, those aren't the things that they talk about. They talk about he's going after the media. You know, he's gonna build the wall, which is you know, let's 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 get border security. That's great. I think that's an important play. That's something that the Republican Party didn't deliver on for a, a generation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so so that's that, that's fine. Let's talk about border security. But outside of that, really, and judges, we've we've exported the decision about who he's going to appoint to the Fed sock, which is great. You know, the mm -hmm. judges the judges have been good. Um, but outside of that, there isn't really any intellectual or ideological consistency to what is on offer from the Trump presidency. And I'm concerned that folks have sort of lost what it is they were fighting for against the GOP establishment, you know, before Trump. Josh. Yeah, it's a little weird for me to hear uh, he seemingly criticized the GOP establishment considering that 
for the entire six years I've known him, he's done nothing other than defend John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and Mitch McConnell and the various other levers of the establishment. But as far as the rest of what to unpack from that, it seems to me pretty obvious the Tea Party always had dueling constitutionalist and populist strands, okay? There were a lot of people with the don't tread on me, Gadsden flags, who sincerely believed in limited government. That's how you got, obviously, Mike Lee uh, kicking out, what was it, Bob Bennett in Utah, Rand Paul in Kentucky. I mean, there was obviously a lot of kind of libertarian, more limited government sentiment there. There also was a very, very, very populist strand to the Tea Party all along. It was famously one Tea Party rally on the... Uh, I think it was in D.C. Uh, this image is like kind of like ingrained in my head. There was this guy who had held up a big sign that said, get your big government hands off my Medicare. I mean, like, come on, right? So, like, uh, it, it wasn't like the, this it, This wasn't like a Reason.com, like, Freedom Fest out in Vegas, like, libertarian purist gathering. There were always competing strands. Trump's defeating of Cruz, the 2016 primary, in one sense, I think, kind of was a symptom of the, of the fact that the populist strand was always – more um, more popular along mm-hmm. than the constitutionalist strand. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's been this XY scatter plot that's gotten a lot of play. Uh, I think it first came out in 2017, where you actually, it was a very, very, very serious political science study. They break it down, you know, the classic XY axis, economic, social, liberal, um, uh, economic, uh, social, conservative. Mm-hmm. The economic conservative social, cultural, liberal quadrant, you know, AKA like the Wall Street Journal editorial board and, yeah. and, and like various other kind of not particularly culture warrior-esque GOP establishment institutions and individuals was 3% of the population. The plurality quadrant was this culturally conservative but economically left-leaning quadrant. And that really mm-hmm. is kind of what Trump tapped into. Now, it seems to me that he did that both substantively, both rhetorically into pushing back against kind of the perceived failures of the establishment. The reality is that we're not really going to know exactly how much the Trump effect was just sheer brute force personality. I mean, Donald Trump obviously had name ID yeah. equivalent to probably Michael Jordan at the time he ran for president. <laughs> um, so we're, yeah. very hard to, to disentangle yes. all this yes. stuff. But it seems to me – I'm kind of rambling here. It seems to me more likely that he was more of a symptom than a cause. But I, but I really do think he was both. I mean, you can't ignore the, the context, yeah. the fact that Trump was elected in the same year that the Brexit phenomenon happened. He kind of presaged the rise of more nationalist figures like Orban in Hungary and yep. Bolsonaro in Brazil. It, 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 it does seem to be that there is like a global – um, pushback, a global, a global pushback against neoliberalism, globalism, whatever you want to call it, and kind of an increased um, interest um, in nationalism and in, cons- in conserving our various nation states' idiosyncratic customs, traits, and traditions. And I, and I guess I because I I think that's right. That that makes sense. And I guess that's what concerns me as a conservative, as a limited government conservative, as a constitutional conservative. I'm concerned when I turn on Fox News and I hear Tucker Carlson lauding the economic points of Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, and pointing to uh, abandoned factories on, mm-hmm. on, the, on the roadside and saying that's the failure of con- free markets, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm concerned that the populism is winning, right, as a conservative. I, I don't think populism is the right answer, right? I, I don't think we ought to just put everything up to a vote and, and let people's emotions um, control the outcome, right? Yep. I mean, voting is important. We got to listen to the people. But we, there's, there's also a role in communicating constitutional values, free market values, the the idea that we're committed to neutral principles and that we're not just going to use the government to meet out an outcome that, you know, 50 plus 1% vote for. So I I, I 
remember that I failed to say one thing that I want to clarify. You know, within this discussion, and I told both of you this, I probably lean a little bit more on Josh's team than Heath's, right? And I only say that because I don't want anybody listening or watching this discussion to feel uh, if they if they in any way feel like I'm asking Heath too many questions. I'm trying to be fair with it, this back and forth. But and trust me, um, I, I'm used to speaking in, in groups and rooms where people don't share my views. So so, so here's my my question. On and I was thinking through why I'm not as upset with Trump regarding the national debt. I was, uh, you mm-hmm. know, and I I think it's because I don't ever remember that being a big mantra of his when he ran for office. I may be wrong, but I feel like now on, I supported. On the contrary, he's a self-proclaimed uh, king of debt. I mean, like because I I supported Ted Cruz. Like I was a strong Ted Cruz supporter for, for president. Right. And so I feel like if Ted had gotten elected and all of a sudden we were blowing up deficits, I would have been really upset. Right. right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of my big issues with John Cornyn, right? Because he got elected. I think when he was elected to the U S Senate, we had $6.7 trillion of debt. Right. And so, I mean, since I've been an activist at 16 years old. I mean, I get pissed and post every time John Cornyn votes for a continuing resolution because, you know, it's like, wait, uh, another trillion, another trillion, another trillion. And so I that's where I go back to, is it all of their problems? Is it like throw out the GOP? Because these the, the U.S. senators that are sitting there, they're totally fine with the trillion dollar deficits like this. I don't think this is a directive from our president as much as it's something he doesn't have a problem with. And both parties in power are totally fine with. So is that deficit issue directed at Trump or is it directed at a Republican Party that really hasn't tried to get spending in line for decades? Both. I mean, both. I mean, I I think and and to your point, I I think, you know, it certainly wasn't one of his main issues. He wasn't out there with the debt clock saying he was going to reduce it. I think he did say that he would or he promised to reduce the debt or or, I mean, certainly not eliminate it. But yeah. You know, be be remotely fiscal conservative. He, yeah. he paid lip service to that, but I mean, I would, I would be raising my voice and objecting to it if it was Liz Warren in the who isn't pretending that she's going to, you know, she's going to double the debt. But I'm going to, you know, as a conservative, I'm still going to reject that when it happens in office. Agreed. I'm saying the the French side of the argument has seemingly sprung up as. You know, post-Trump, like you have a group of people that weren't right. screaming against the Republican Party mm-hmm. before 2016, right? And one of the big talking points is the debt. But if the debt is the big talking point, shouldn't this be the same group of people that were screaming against the Republican Party well before 2016? Does that make sense? I mean, yeah. shouldn't the same people saying, basically, this is a major, major problem on an issue that I just don't think Trump really prioritized be essentially angry with Republicans in general. I mean, one of my concerns is I think Republicans are losing the position of being the party of less spending, right? I mean, I don't know that that's a big mantra within the party, and that's probably a national problem that we have, right? I mean, uh, we're going to eventually have to pay this debt, right. and if neither party is willing to address it, then that's just going to It seems to like our friend Chip us. Roy is the only congressman who literally still cares about this issue. That's, that's true. true. Yeah, that's yeah, true. yeah, yeah, Chip Roy. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, no. Only one. Yeah, no, and he mentions it every time. Yes, he does. And he's my congressman. I tell you, I'm so proud of him. I so Lamar Smith was my congressman before, and I I'm sorry, Lamar, if you're listening to this, but I never (laughs) voted for him, and I didn't. And you know, people go, "Hey, you voting for Lamar?" I'm like, "Absolutely not. I'll undervote the congressional seat." And I said because he's literally enslaving my children and their children 
and I don't appreciate that. Like, I really don't. I don't appreciate it. I kind of take offense if you're s- deciding to keep your own power and be in with the club so that, and basically living off of our generation and the generation to come after us. So I don't vote for Republicans that do that. So you and I are in agreement as far as the national debt goes, but I don't understand how this has become like one of the chief critics of laying at the feet of Donald Trump, I guess, is what I'm saying. Not not that he is not, uh, he, he hasn't been critical right. of the deficits, but is that really the definition of what his presidency is about or the priorities? No, I mean, certainly not. I mean, I wouldn't say that's the only thing, right? I yep. mean, I think there, there's a number of other things. I'm just saying, I think, given where the given where the conservative grassroots were prior to Trump, yep. that isn't something you hear them talking about at all now. Yep. And that's that that's something that concerns me. It concerns me that we're not talking about constitutional separation of powers, articles one, two, and three. What's the proper scope of the presidency? I I we we're just kind of, well, he did something I like, so it's okay. And and the other thing, and and this is something I should have brought up earlier. I, another thing that worries me is just the indifference to dishonesty among conservatives. I mean, let's let's just shoot it straight. This is a guy who, and I don't think he always intends to to do it necessarily, but he lies like nearly every tweet, everything that comes out of his mouth almost is is a lie. I mean, this is a guy that drew a circle on the on the National Weather Service map that it was going to go into Mississippi because I well, I don't know why, but then he directed the Weather Service to change their maps. I mean. I, it, that should not be something that conservatives are okay with, right? And I, and I just haven't heard the type of, um, you know, certainly some some people are upset with that and they're calling it out, but a lot of people are just kind of excusing it, turning a blind eye, and just saying, well, that's just that's just the way he is. Um, so truth and honesty is another one that I think that conservatives would do well to protect, even if even if they have to call out some on our own side to protect it. Um, Josh, why don't you? When it, when it comes to the national debt issue, I just want to kind of get your take on that as a whole, Republican Party, Trump, why the grassroots aren't using that as a main talking point. I mean, the reality is mm-hmm. if Republicans really cared about the debt, then they would just like chunk two-thirds of Congress, right? right <laughs> and just right. like throw them out in their primary and say, here's how many times you voted to raise it, so you're out. So why do you think that's not become a central issue? And really, when I say become hasn't been a central issue for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a fiscal conservative, okay? I have not moved an inch on these issues for yep. my entire life since, like, middle school, okay? Uh, deficits are bad. Debt is bad. So how were you in elementary school? <laughs> <laughs> like, at what point? So you were, like, just blow it out, and then, like, middle school, you're like, Pulled stop out the green, spending! Green eyes shades. Yeah, you had, like, yeah. a I mean, credit I, card. I, I, I wrote a column just in... Um, in middle August. school. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay, go Well, ahead. I, I was writing political commentary in high school, but I, I, I wrote a column for our, our site in August saying... Yep. Fiscal conservatism is dead. Republicans killed it, criticizing like one of like the budget, mm-hmm. like, like you know, like like total pieces of yep. dog crap. Yep. I wrote a column back in April saying that like Republicans still have to lead on entitlement reform. So yep. I, I care a lot about this. As far as your question, why are Republicans not like up in arms yelling about it? I think you basically nailed it. Okay, the president is many things. He is not a morally upstanding figure. It was one of the many reasons I could not vote for him in 2016 was because of his moral shortcomings and flaws. I decided yep. that I that I couldn't do it. But one thing that he actually really, I think, generally has done is he has actually lar- in large part governed like he said he would. Now, there, there are some issues where he has just not lived up to his campaign promises. Immigration, I think, being chief among them. He obviously talks very big game. And not a whole lot of miles of the border wall have gone up, much to Ann Coulter's uh, daily chagrin, yep. it seems. Um, and my <laughs> chagrin, too, as a border yes. hawk, for sure. Yep. Um, but um, 
on these issues, on these bread and butter kind of fiscal issues, whether it's the, the national debt, whether it's entitlement reform, he campaigned as a populist. He didn't campaign that he was going to cut the deficit. He didn't campaign that he was going to reform entitlements. And hey, guess what? That was one of the many reasons that I supported Ted Cruz in the primary, okay? Yep. Because yep. I care about these issues. But I think a lot of people just... Uh, they, we reap what we sow as a republic, Luke. I mean, like, we elected someone who campaigned as an economic populist who expressed very little interest in trimming deficits and reforming entitlements. And sure enough, now, you know, almost three years into the Trump presidency, he's done exactly what he said he would. And that, and, and that, that, that trend, I think, really generally holds kind of across the board. He said he would get out of the Iran deal. He got out of the Iran deal. He said he would move the embassy from, from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He moved the embassy. He oftentimes has done exactly what he said he would. I think immigration is a glaring exception to that. Yep. But he campaigned as an economic figure that he actually, in fact, really is. Yep. I guess this is this is my concern is that if I, I agree I agree with that I mean he wasn't out there campaigning as a constitutional conservative but if say he loses in 2020 to an Elizabeth Warren or somebody mm-hmm. who is just going to do ridiculous things yep. <laughs> that conservatives are going to be outraged over how are we going to credibly dissent against those things if if categorically we have accepted some of them in Donald Trump. Do you think that an Elizabeth, so is your position that you think an Elizabeth Warren presidency is going to be more in line and consistent with Donald Trump's governing? Well, or? I just think, look, they're going to, the Democrats are going to get in there. They're going to, you know, if, if, if Elizabeth Warren wins, they're going to do Medicare for all. And it's going to be this huge government price tag. Yes. And Republicans everywhere in every corner of the country are going to revolt. It's going to be mayhem. Yep. And they're going to want to make the argument that this is going to devastate our federal budget, devastate our, our public coffer. And Democrats are going to say, wow, you know, glad to finally hear from you. You know, I just I'm I'm concerned that we're going to have lost credibility I, 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 on those. Yeah, I understand that point. I just feel like our reason for opposing socialized medicine is because socialized medicine is horrifically bad. Oh, yeah. And that, that it limits sure. people's access to health care and that we know that it's going to raise taxes. In fact, Bernie Sanders is like, yeah, middle class, you're getting your taxes Absolutely. raised, right? So I feel like there's a whole lot of things that Republicans in fact, probably our top five talking points I don't think will be inconsistent with things that we've said before. That's why I guess I'm not seeing sure. that we're going to be running out and— Forfeiting all of our, all of our arguments. And Obama, I mean, we, we've definitely uh, criticized executive orders and, and um, you know, for, for quite some time. Um, What—going back, is the position—and maybe this is—I uh, I would love to get y'all's thoughts because— the three of us, just to put perspective based on what you said and you said, the three of none of us supported Trump in 2016. Okay. And that's why I actually like this conversation because, like, none of us were on the team going, like, this is the right. guy for the, you know, we were not the early Trump people. Um, and I think we've kind of landed different places since 2016. So, it, Heath, do you think that another Republican would have beat Hillary Clinton? Is your position that you think that it still would have ended up with Republicans? Maintaining the presidency? I think almost any Republican would have beaten Hillary Clinton. Okay. Do you think so as well, Josh? I am less certain of that. Um, I I, I made arguments to friends pretty often in 2016 defending the possibility that Ted Cruz could defeat Hillary Clinton, but it would have been a closer call, I think. I mean, Trump had unique Rust Belt appeal. I mean, his populist shtick, I mean, with immigration, trade, I mean, bread and butter economic issues. Someone who's campaigning as an entitlement reform crusader— I don't know if they're going to win Wisconsin yep. or Michigan, honestly. It's a, it's an open question. I, I really think it is. And, and it's not a question I asked myself until, you know, 
2017. So I'm, I'm, I always tell people from a consulting perspective, I'm like the best hindsight consultant, like <laughs> honestly in the business. Like if you want to know what happened, I could give you so much insight into that. Uh, not as much about the future, but uh, yeah, I think you do have to ask yourself that question uh, based on where the United States is. If Ted's message would have resonated in Michigan, if his message would have resonated even in Florida to the extent that, um, and Florida is actually kind of one of those anomalies that seems to be trending towards Republicans, right? But when you take Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, I mean, these are... Entitlement reform, by the way, is uniquely unpopular in Florida of all states. Obviously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's probably true. Important and, state. Yeah, and then and as far as the Rust Belt message, I mean, Trump's message to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania was would be completely different than Ted Cruz's message to Wisconsin, yes. Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And, and those states came by you know, razor-thin margins. So um, you have a little bit of maybe differences in, in how we would have seen the 2016 election going. the Because my other question, then asking that as a result of that, post-primary, um, and none of us were telling all of our friends to get out and go and pull that lever for Donald Trump all the way down, right? And I admit to being uh, significantly skeptical up until, you know, November, the day he won, and going like, well, this is going to be fun, because I just didn't think he was actually going to do what he said he was going to do. And then I feel like, to Josh's point, he's largely done what he said he was going to do. And it, it, when I look at his promises that he made and the reason that, you know, my parents and my pastor and other people said, I'm going to vote for that guy because he said he's doing these things, um, you know, would we have rather had Hillary Clinton appointing the two Supreme Court justices that we have? Is that an, Would that be an acceptable uh, alternative, or is it good that he won, but we should be highly critical of times he steps out of bounds? Yeah, that 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 is a great question. Yeah, um, I'm I'm certainly glad that Hillary Clinton did not appoint those two two yeah. two justices. Yeah. That we have Brett Kavanaugh, that yeah. we have Justice Gorsuch, is a tremendous victory for constitutional conservatism. So that being said, the 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 choice of alternatives. I mean, I I I didn't I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote I wrote a name mm -hmm. in, um, and that was just because I. I think that votes have to be earned. I think my votes have to, vote had to be earned. Now, in in terms of the retrospective, what would have happened? What would what on balance would have been the harm to conservatism versus the benefits? I I you know it would have been bad under Hillary Clinton. It's mm -hmm. been bad under Donald Trump. Um and 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 so I I, I think I'm I'm looking forward. I I just I think we're in in a similar spot than we were in 2016. I don't think conservatism really hasn't been advanced at all. I think we're just fighting different battles against different enemies. But when, going back to the Supreme Court, just, I, I mean, that was a big issue in 2016, mm -hmm. but I think when it comes to record, when we talk about conserving society, I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? I mean, the, the conservation of what we have, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of a Kirkian uh, in, in just my understanding of conservatism and establishments, but when I look at that, and I don't think even in 2015, 2016, I had as much appreciation now looking back on the two Supreme Court justices we have, realizing the level of disruption that those two justices being liberal would have caused for society. And you, you, can you not argue that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh will probably do more to con just to tamp down and conserve on the progressive, you know, 
trajectory of society over the next 10 years based on the Supreme Court rulings that will not come out or the Supreme Court rulings that will protect going back to the right space when it comes to Second Amendment, First Amendment issues, those essentially would be gone. I mean, we'd be arguing First and Second Amendment rights-based versus Amariism, but the truth is if we had those two liberal Supreme Court justices, there wouldn't be yeah. rights to yeah. even talk about. I mean, so, Heller and Citizens United, the most important First and Second Amendment cases of this entire century would be overturned within a year of Hillary Clinton and one probably. So what level of appreciation or what level of at least credit do we give for that Supreme Court being where it is? I mean, I think credit, credit. I mean, I'll give the credit, yeah. the president credit where it's due. I mean, he has leveraged the Federalist Society to a hilt and, and the Federalist Society has appointed constitutional uh, originalist judges yeah. that so, know so how to interpret I, I the Constitution. To, I need, I need to this, is just, this is factually incorrect, okay? The Federal Society, Leonard Leo, Gene Meyer, and, and I'm very close with these people, okay? The Federal Society obviously has a lot of influence in judicial selection, but Don McGahn, the White House Counsel's Office, is where the buck stops, okay? The okay. president makes those... those he, he, he handpicked right. ultimately Gorsuch and Kavanaugh himself. Uh, yeah, to, 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 to his credit, to his credit, yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah. I, I don't... I'll just put it this way. I don't think... Uh, I don't think Trump knew who Justice Kavanaugh was when he was running for president. Yeah, and I, I, but, <laughs> yeah. but to that point, I mean, I don't know that Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush or John McCain or Mitt Romney right. knew who Neil Gorsuch was when they were running for president Ooh. either. Right? Oh. I mean, do you? I mean, do you? I mean, I would, maybe I think I would. I I mean, I think maybe some of them did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe <laughs> but, they're more versed in in. I mean, when I talk to you know conservative lawyers, y'all run in certain circles, right? I'm like, oh, you know this guy, and you know this guy, and you know this guy. I'm like, I don't know anybody you're talking about right now, right? Oh, and there's this other judge. Lawyers, no lawyers idea. Are the worst, man. It's a special <laughs> circle. So like, I would be highly surprised if George W. Bush. Or John McCade, or Mitt Romney, or any of these guys were running, going, I I've been looking at the you know federal bench sure. lineups, and I know who exactly is positioned. Isn't that ultimately though they were appointed by the president? Yes, and and look, and, I, and I'm not taking away the credit. Gets the credit. The judges yeah. are there. It's been a tremendous victory. I don't know that it is. To me, the judges are not enough to yes. warrant supporting wholeheartedly yep. Donald Trump. I think yep. is, is is just the most succinct way to understand. So I want to get into uh, we're, we're now we're talking about law and legal stuff. So I had, a, I had a question that I was thinking about. So Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, both Supreme Court nominees uh, or now Supreme Court justices, uh, both better than what Democrats would have appointed, but also different justices yep. so far. So first, kind of, can y'all both rate Neil Gorsuch's general? Uh, I guess grade since he's been on the court. Are we pretty happy across the board? I'm I'm happy with both of them. I mean, I know that uh, I know originalists disagree uh, a lot. I mean, the the the, the conservatives on the court disagree um, a lot, and I think I think that's a testament to the objective interpretation that um, you know originalist judges bring to their um, jurisprudence. Um, so I, I I rate both of them highly. I think there's differences, but um, so do we give them like A ratings for both? A, I, I give both of them A A, okay. a ratings. And Josh, uh, Gorsuch gets a B plus. He's way too libertarian, and he loves criminals. Um, <laughs> Kavanaugh, he hasn't really done much yet. I mean, he's like a he's a B minus or a B. He's fine. He's serviceable. Okay. He's Karl Rove in a robe. He's an establishment Republican. He's fine. Is that a B? 
C plus B minus. <laughs> okay. Okay. I mean, man, I was to say you're complimenting Carl Rove significantly when you're like he's a B. I mean, Kavanaugh's joined, he, he's joined the right side of most five four opinions. He, okay. He, he is not epically messed up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then then we might have more of an opinion on Kavanaugh over the next year yes, or I think, two. I think correct. That's, I, think I mean, definitely right. we'll know more based on. I, I genuinely do not believe Neil Gorsuch is as good as most people think he is, though. But perhaps we can break that down. Okay. He's, he's a strong textualist, I think. But I mean, I, I mean, he like, you could disagree with his decisions, but I, I, I actually like, I actually like Gorsuch. No, probably. I like him a lot. And and your point is that I mean, he is he's come out as pretty libertarian on times and broken with kind of the more traditional conservative orthodoxy within those issues. Yeah, I mean, not to get like not to get too legally deep in the weeds. But I, I would actually love you, <laughs> love for you too, because <laughs> oh, I, I just because I I'm not as as well read, and I know that you this is your area of focus. But I would actually love to hear. Yeah, it. his belief in one doctrine in particular just sincerely and genuinely worries me. He believes in the notion that he believes over in the overarching notion that a law can be quote unquote unconstitutionally void for vagueness. And he first came out swinging on this in an, an immigration case called Sessions versus DeMaia in April 2018, where for the first time in the history of the United States government, an immigration enforcement statute was deemed unconstitutional because it was void for vagueness. Um, he joined the, the liberals. He wrote this flowery 15 to 18 page roughly concurrence where he was framing in terms of Blackstone and the English common law tradition. He was signing the Federalist Papers. He's very good at this. Gorsuch is very good at citing the kind of things that will tickle originalist fancies. But he has this very, very troubling libertarian streak. And Justice Thomas, in that case, Sessions versus DeMaia, wrote like a 30 to 35 page uh, dissent, just a torching Gorsuch's kind of uh, distortion, obfuscation of, of founding era theory and constitutional literacy, honestly, on, on, on fundamental level. So I, I, I really worry about this. There were two, there were two cases last term. Uh, Rahafe was one, I'm blank on the name of the other, where he did something very similar, joined the liberals and kind of like a, a, a habeas corpus type cases. So um, suffice to say, um, I'm pretty skeptical of him on some of this. And I think he, he had a very, very weird dissent in, in the Fourth Amendment case of, uh, what was it, Carpenter, I believe it was, in 2018. It, it, was, it was a dissent in name only. It was, it was, a, it was a dino, if you can. Uh, call it that. Um, he 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 just has this very 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 weird libertarian streak, and as someone who does not think that libertarianism is a healthy constitutional, uh, political, or legal philosophy, um, I have serious reservations about Justice Gorsuch. Actually, hmm. yeah, I I guess I because I I understood his void of va- void for vagueness doctrine not rooted so much in libertarianism, but just rooted in a different. I mean, I, I think his he's motivated by this idea that we as citizens ought to be on notice about what the laws are, particularly when those laws are uh, penal provisions or criminal provisions. If if the state is going to use its power to put that's us fine in as jail. a political matter, as a legal matter, that ends up being synonymous with substantive due process. Also, okay. well. so we've got impeachment before us, and I know the two of you have differing views on that in general. And I'd I'd be remiss if that didn't enter the conversation about and and I want to frame it around the idea of conserving what we have right mm-hmm. uh, protecting what we have so um you know Heath you I don't want to put words in your mouth so what's your sure. position on on impeachment in general and then how do you think that will also protect what we have and what's the what's the results that you'd like to see come out of there sure so I I once impeachment became a conversation, once, once the the evidence came out of the call, and even the Mueller report, there were there were elements of the Mueller report that were were disturbing to me in terms of the direction to McGon to uh, lie to the special counsel uh, or the the allegation that that occurred. Uh, I, I really focused back on what it meant for to the founders when they put impeachment 
the, the impeachment clause into the Constitution. And my view of the impeachment clause is that its central purpose is to protect the the constitutional the, our government against an enterprising, powerful executive that would abuse the public trust in pursuit of his own private gain. Now, if, if we take that principle and apply it neutrally to facts, I think that there is at the very least the evidence that we have heard from the career uh, intelligence officials, Fiona Hill, Bill Taylor, all of these people who have come forward expressing contemporary concern. I mean, there were people that heard what happened and contacted counsel. I mean, these are people that have been, you know, Colonel Vindman, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was blown up in Iraq. This guy is not a partisan guy. Uh, You know, I, I think we have to credit those and I think we have to listen to them. And I think we run the risk as as Republicans of just being dismissed and, 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 and losing our fidelity to the Constitution if we don't, as Justin Amash has done, as a lot of different people have done, take in all the facts, apply, pick a principle that we're applying, and then apply it. That's why I, I, I've, I've supported the impeachment inquiry from the beginning. Since the facts have come out um, in, in, the, in the House's procedure, which they're, you know, it, it has been a little bit of a one-sided process mm-hmm. for sure, um, a little bit, <laughs> yeah, okay. a little bit. But it's, but it's, but it's a great. I mean, there's going to be time in the Senate for a a full trial to occur. I mean, this is the the indictment phase, and if if we can put together a a, a if, if a case can be made to that that the, the the president abused his power in in pursuit of his own gain that he withheld lawfully appropriated funds to investigate his political opponent. I mean, why are we? I, I just there's corruption everywhere. It, it just the idea that it was just about going after corruption on the face of that transcript and what we've heard to me is just stretches the bounds of reasonability. Um, and so, so I, I think that this does deserve a Senate trial. Um, and, and I think that the president should, if, if there are people in the white house, like John Bolton, like Mick Mulvaney, who can exonerate him through testimony. Um, I think that needs to happen because I think the balance of evidence that we have right now yep. is 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 sufficient to put it to a vote at least I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't at least ask the question through the impeachment process but because i think this is what it was when meant you say for. put it to a vote should it be voted in favor of or against in that way i i I, I would i i can't just like any senator yeah. i don't think you could could say right but now that you need congress to be like if if you're a congressman if you're, you're a congressman saying, i would i would vote to impeach right now yep. yes is what i would do so um, Alexander Hamilton quite clearly defines what high crimes and misdemeanors means in Federal 65. He, he defines defines the ambit of Congress's jurisdiction as far as high crimes and misdemeanors um, as being synonymous with, quote, an abuse or violation of some public trust. Donald Trump is the fourth president that has um, or is about to be impeached, okay? Andrew Johnson in the late 1860s violated the he statutorily violated the Tenure of Office Act. Now, the Tenure of Office Act was an unconstitutional statute, so he actually, in my opinion, did not act erroneously, but at least his partisan opponents in Congress had the fig leaf of violating mm-hmm. the statute, okay? Fast forward about a century, you have Nixon and Watergate speaks for itself. Bill Clinton obviously committed perjury. What has Donald Trump done? Donald Trump has literally tried to attach strings to the doling out of foreign aid, which consistently politically polls as one of the least popular issues in the federal budget every single year. And by the way, the only issue that, that aids Ukraine was in play in the first place is because Barack Obama was caught in a hot mic with Dmitry Medvedev in 2012, saying that he would have more flexibility to kowtow to Russia in his second term. And, there, and part of that kowtowing was actually taking back 
of American resources from Ukraine. Obviously, Crimea being a huge part of that in 2014. So the only reason why this Ukraine situation is even in play, first of all, let's, go, let's contextualize it, is the weak foreign policy and the kowtowing to the Kremlin of not Donald Trump, not that alleged nefarious Russia, Russia sympathizing foreign agent, but of Barack Obama himself. So let's just say that right off the bat. Now, a few things going on here, okay? I've read the transcript like 20 times, okay? Like, I, I, it's five pages. I do this for a living. I, I, I'm literally trying to, 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 like, to like read it and see if there's something that I'm missing. Now, uh, look, the crowd strike thing, okay, is a conspiracy theory. That's that's weird, okay? Like, he, that, that's just Trump being Trump. He talks like he talks like the kind of guy we thought he would talk like. He talks like Don from Donnie from Queens. I mean, that's that, that's who he is. I'm from New York originally. I understand, I think, intuitively the kind of way that Donald Trump talks and comports himself. It's not presidential. It's not always lovely. Oftentimes, it's crass and ugly, but this is just who he is. As far as the Biden and Burisma thing in particular is concerned, he obviously should not have named by name a, a political mm -hmm. rival. That was inappropriate conduct, and it was wrong. And I've mm -hmm. said consistently that it was wrong. Now, Burisma, of course, was a uniquely troubled company. They were lobbying for State Department access. Obviously, you had the whole situation with Joe Biden. We've all seen the video of him at the Council yep. on Foreign Relations bragging about the prosecutor. Yep. The, there was a lot to investigate, okay? And, like, there were – look at what Paul Manafort uh, – well, he's in jail now. But, like, a lot of the stuff that he was doing with Ukraine in 2016, there, there were very bad actors in Ukraine. Uh, they did not institutionally as a country meddle in the 2016 election yep. the same way that Putin and, yep. and the Kremlin did. Yep. But there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of corruption there. And to me, the president, again, he did not act perfectly on this phone call. But to impeach over this less than a year away from an election, I think is absolutely backcrap crazy. And as far as our two articles of impeachment are concerned, abuse of power is the first article of impeachment. That arguably sits well within the Hamiltonian language of Federal 65 that I referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. The second article of impeachment, which was an op-ed that I wrote for the New York Post this past weekend, is utterly and completely nonsensical. To impeach for obstruction of Congress yeah. is literally to impeach the executive branch for being the executive branch. It is to impeach the James Madison... And just to, just to maybe clarify, I mean, like, are you... Would you agree that the uh, obstruction of Congress is probably not an impeachable offense, or do you think that's also rising to the level? I think it's. I and and a, a conservative attorney in Oklahoma, Gabe Mueller, Mailer, who who I respect a lot of his opinions. He said he said this about the obstruction uh, article. He 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 made the point that if Congress doesn't assert its oversight authority uh, as as a co-equal branch of government, what's to stop? If this isn't if it's not, if it's not an impeachable offense here. What's to stop the next president, a Democratic president, from just saying, no, I don't want any of my people in the executive branch to testify to Congress about anything that we are doing? It was actually Eric Holder as the attorney general under Barack Obama right. who wrote a DOJ memo basically saying that high-ranking executive branch officials do not need to obey subpoenas. And every and during every impeachment proceeding in the past, there's always been a subpoena that's been enforced by judicial order, which obviously has not happened this time either. Yeah. Wasn't good when wasn't good when Holder did it either. Yep. With if Joe, how so, is the position that you're advocating not congressional supremacy? It's it's if it's, the president is not allowed to push back against Congress subpoenaing anyone in the executive branch, you are you you're you're, you're advocating for British style parliamentary mm, legislative supremacy. No, no, the president has the right to assert, to assert executive immunity, presidential immunity to anything. He hasn't he hasn't asserted any immunity with respect to these these witnesses. He's just said don't go. He's he's obstructing their appearance. There's been no assertion of immunity. That would that would remain untouched. What I'm saying is a president can't for for no reason at all just block executive department officials from appearing in front of why 
What? Why? Well, because because Congress but, has but, the power but of oversight. That, but do you think that's literally an impeachable offense? Like that is the level at which Congress. And again, I'm not you. Your point that you made when establishing your reasons for supporting impeachment didn't include that. So I, I'm not saying you have to own that. But do you think that in itself, just the obstruction part, is even an impeachable offense? I mean, no. I mean, I think it's I think it's coupled with the context of everything that we've seen. I mean, I think it's, I, and that's why I think it's it's patterns of behavior here. I mean, I, I don't think you should impeach on a technicality, but I think the facts that we see here are pretty damning. If Joe Biden was not running for president, let's say he was, you know, chilling out with Hunter, hanging out, not going to run, would it still be an impeachable? offense or is the problem that the person that was involved within the potential corruption in Ukraine also running for president? I think that is an important element of it because I think it's an element of betraying the public trust. Okay. So is the act of any, so again, take Joe Biden's not running for president. He says, Hey, there's a bunch of shady stuff going on. We've got a former vice president. You talk about public corruption, right? Like we've got a former public official who's literally saying he did this and got this for it. This seems to provide all sorts of problems. Can you look into that? If that guy's not running for president, is it still in a, is that like literally off the table? If you're, if a former elected official has done anything wrong, you can't ask somebody else to do, to investigate them as a result of your aid that you're giving. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, I, I think there was there were way if there were corruption here regardless if it's the fact that he was the president or that he was running for president i think just is is circumstantial evidence that speaks to corrupt motive on the president's part oh. i think if but but if he wasn't president i think what you would need to show is that 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 if you could show in that case that that Donald Trump was pursuing his private gain and and betraying the public trust. Then yes, okay. But if you just if, if he was just going after corruption, fine. Yeah, the president can can, can go after corruption. But isn't the wants. only tie to gain the fact that Joe Biden's running against him? I mean, I I think look. Oh, what I'm it, saying is, I mean, yeah. that's the whole. Isn't the whole point of gain is that this guy's running for president? Yes. I mean, it's it. There it, is no gain out. It's not like oh, he was wanting his son to get it, the it, Barisma it, deal or yes. something. It was like this is all. The only gain is that Biden. Yeah, the the, the 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 theory of impeachment is that Donald Trump was looking at the landscape and saying, "How can I use the levers of my power to increase the chances that I will win uh, the election?" And he did it inappropriately. I mean, people do that all the time. They're thinking, "Oh, well, I can lower taxes. I can do X." But so, now he's like withholding. He's withholding appropriated aid that our ally needs to combat Russia. Aid that ended up going out, and Ukraine didn't, didn't even realize it was. It being went out. Else. It went out after it was reported that he was withholding the aid inappropriately. It went out without any action being taken by the Ukrainian government to service Donald Trump's request. It went out with an intervening revelation that it was being withheld by President Trump. <laughs> it literally went out. I know, but just because it went out doesn't mean that the in- initial attempt and the initial apparatus that he put together to withhold the aid wasn't inappropriate, wasn't impeachable. Just because, I mean, if, if, just because he got halfway out the door and then dropped the money doesn't mean he still didn't try to rob the bank. Look, foreign aid routinely pulls one of the least popular items on yeah. the entire yeah, federal no, budget. No question. In in, in general. Trying to attach, we should be trying to attach more strings on doling out a foreign yeah. aid. We literally should be doing sure. that more often across the board. Yeah. The, way, the way the president tried to do that here was not exactly kosher, was not exactly proper in many ways. But in general, trying to attach more strings to giving out U.S. taxpayers to venal, corrupt, 
oftentimes anti-American foreign governments is a good thing. Certainly. And taxpayers should laud it. I, I, I agree with that. I, where, where I disagree is when one of those strings uh, runs afoul of the president's commitment. Well, to not only would you disagree, you apparently think it's an impeachable offense. Well, I, I do think it's an impeachable offense because I think the impeachment clause, as I said, was was meant to protect the public trust against an enterprising president who would use the levers of power for his own personal benefit. What I want to circle back to the conversation around, you know, what the biggest threat to conservatism is. And I know I started it with that. But to me, um, you know, Josh's point being that he sees the threat as the biggest threat being socialism and the radical far left that are attempting to completely take over our society, right? And he, you see the biggest threat being our loss of our, our loss of agreement about what we're fighting for as conservatives. Because if we can't, if we, if we don't have a banner that we're carrying, that when we did agree we on. lose it? I, was, I, was gonna I say, guess why, why the question. Why do you think the conservatives always agreed as to well? What it well, no, 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 no. So yeah, yeah. So so when when did we lose it? I mean, I think I think we have significantly lost our ability to agree on what conservatism. Wait, like, wait, like just the, start- just the broad, even the broad outlines, because I think now the Republican Party largely stands for populism and nationalism. I but don't do think we- it. I don't think it is a conservative. So you party. don't think we lost it when we bailed out the banks when we did yeah. massive Wall Street? No, I, I think, I think, I think we lost it along the lines. But I think it is. I think we have lost it almost beyond retrievability. Hopefully not, but almost beyond retrievability over the last three, four years. Do you know on what issues? Uh, go on, sorry. On what issues? That's what I'm trying to. And I want to know. So let's. I'm trying to flesh it out so we can have a discussion. I think constitutionalism and limited government, the importance of the rule of law. I think fiscal responsibility, fiscal conservatism, manageable public deficits. Um, I think crony capitalism. Now we're mm-hmm. just kind of okay with as long as a company stays in. We don't care what strings we have to pull, what things we have to to do. We just want to mess with the markets to 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 keep these companies here. Tariffs, free trade. We were never a a, a pro tariff party, not in in at least modern conservatism yeah. since Reagan. So I think we've lost a number of policy and so when I pillars. and I'm I'm asking some follow up questions because I want to bring Josh in here, but I'm trying to. So when did we lose the battle to crony capitalists? Like, and what my my let me make some points in because I'm trying to understand. I mean. Tech, one of the things I've been fighting in Texas for a long time is the crony capitalism that is very pervasive, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we bring companies in left and right and we hand them out checks and then all the politicians show up and they cut the ribbons. They go, I delivered these 40 jobs after giving this guy $17 million. And then they go, wait a second, right. this sounds like a really bad idea. So I'm uh, wholeheartedly against crony capitalism, but I don't see that as some recent thing that happened in 2016 or 2017, as well as the deficit issues. I'm mean, going to go back to John Cornyn I mean, are, should we all be basically opposing John Cornyn's reelection because the debt was at six point seven trillion when he got elected, and it's over guess, twenty trillion? Right, I mean, no, wouldn't I, that be the same and, case? And, and, and so has John Cornyn not earned the vote of Texans? Yeah, I, Does that make sense? Like, I, I, and I'm asking I, I that question because I'm trying yeah. to understand what was if, the light if these if these are the principles? Yeah, right. So should Texans not vote for John Cornyn for reelection, or should anybody not voting for Donald Trump? Also, not vote for John Cornyn. I, I the on-off switch of how yeah. we would vote. I think that's that's a challenging way to look at it. I, I think because I because I think look, conservatives they're going to be given a choice between John Cornyn yeah. and someone else. I I don't you know, 
support John Cornyn if you're But we will be right. as well with Donald. Isn't that the same thing with Donald Trump? I mean, you'll be given the choice between Donald Trump and someone else. Right. I mean, and, and, and every, everyone is going to have to individually decide what their conservative conscience allows correct. them to pull the lever for. I, I, I'll just say, I think the complacency, I mean, it used to be that if someone made a wrong vote or if someone raised taxes, I mean, there was going to be an, or, or an organized response in their district saying, what the hell did you do? Like, what, what are you thinking, right? Like, executive orders without Congress? What, what are you doing? Um, that's just not... I don't, I don't see that anymore, and I miss that about the Republican so Party. So I want to ask you, because I want to bring Josh on the right there. So when did we start losing... Like, when did we lose them? We, 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 it, it, it didn't start with Donald Trump, if that's what okay. you're asking. Yeah. I think, you know... There's there's been a, a degradation of that. I think the Tea Party. I, I think there were activists uh, in 2010 that tried to resuscitate some of that, and they made a good effort. Did not succeed clearly, and I think, from my view, we are best served in trying to revive that that commitment to principle than just sort of, you know, we obviously need to fight the left. We need to, to we, mm -hmm. we need to make sure that conservative views and and values win the day. But in order to win that battle, I think it's important that we figure out what those principles are and fight for them again. Because I, I don't see, I just see us, everybody's kind of putting on a red hat and, 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 and cheering, right? I don't. Yeah, I'm baffled by a few things. Um, I'm baffled by this notion that following Russell Kirk and William F. And William F. Buckley, got a man in Yale, the founding of National Review, Frank Meyer Fusionism, following all this kind of mid 20th century intellectual foundations for what we might call modern conservatism, I am baffled the notion that even within that time frame, let's call it since 1955, the founding of National Review, yeah. the notion that conservatives have not been battling consistently with one another over what it means to be conservative. Yeah. Of, of course we yeah, have. Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it, I'm not saying we haven't, but there's I'm just... Never, there's never been one coherent, unifying definition of what it means to be conservative. I mean, I, I, let's go back to what I said earlier, okay? Right. Irving Kristol said that there are three things that make a conservative. And Irving, obviously, unlike his son, was a legitimate intellectual. He said nationalism, religion, and economic growth, okay? He, he said nationalism right there. Bill Buckley, on the other hand, said, call me a patriot all you want, never call me a nationalist. So he, two of the titans of the early mid-20th century movement could not disagree more. By the way, Irving was totally right on that one. I think uh, Bill Buckley, bless his heart, was manifestly wrong. Uh, the first Republican Party president, by the way, a man on whose birthday I'm very proud to have been born, Abraham Lincoln, perhaps the most quintessential nationalist figure in the entire history of the republic. I mean, he relied... He, he 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 relied on a lot of things. He obviously he brought the Declaration back from its kind of uh, uh, ash heap of history sad at the time. He brought it back to the forefront of the public discourse and the public culture. He ultimately relied on those Declaration principles to kind of uh, remedy ultimately America's original sin, of course, of chattel slavery. But in other ways, Lincoln was a staunch nationalist. He he believed in in, in the Union. He believed in the nation. So this notion that nationalism has never been part of either conservatism or the Republican Party at large is just an ahistorical fiction. It's a total delusional fantasy. So, so Heath, with that, uh, just going back to that, do you have a response to that, or do you believe? And I actually like the idea of having a conversation around nationalism as well. I mean, that's one of the things that's been brought in, but it's also not been one of the things that you've had on your list of criticisms of the president. Is that something that you agree with the general move toward, or is that also a concern of yours? I, I, I agree with Josh that that. A, a, a strain of nationalism has always been within the Republican Party. And I think that nationalism is a, a, is, is, is a pride in our national set of values, which I think are enshrined in the Constitution. Yep. They're, a liberal, they're, they're a set of liberal values of, of defending freedom, defending human liberty. It has, it has very little to do with, you know, certainly very little to do with race. 
certainly very little to do with a a particular set of you know cultural values. I think the founders were committed to the idea that look, the government exists to protect protect people's liberties, and what really where culture is created is in our communities, and that's why they believed in federalism. That's why they wanted to to, to get power out of the federal government so that it wasn't that one election dictated the course of how we interacted together as human yep. beings, right? I think culture is created in our communities, and I, and so, so this idea said, that we're going to use not the about state. race and not about culture, mm -hmm. but I think those are two different things. So race is, I mean, I think we'd all agree it's not about race, right? So yeah. I think we can generally agree on that. And I know Charlie Kirk, and you know, he had this famous little criticism of of uh, you know a couple of those college students that were definite racists at his um, at his at his event. So if we take race out, because I think especially when talking about nationalism, it's good to take race off because it starts with none of us are racist, right? Like right. none of us believe in that. So nationalism being on the idea that there is a common culture, that there are common traits and how is that something that conservatives should believe in or is that also a distinction between? Well, and, and, and I'll just characterize what I think the distinction is. And then Josh, I'll have the, interested to hear what you say. I think the distinction is I, I don't think that the government creates our culture. I think our communities need to be free. People need to be free in our churches, in our in our social organizations to create culture locally. And we ought to get power out of the federal government and put it locally so that there that, you know national culture just doesn't change on a whim the next time the Democrats win. Yeah. So nationalism in my perspective, by definition, entails a common common overarching set of customs, traits, and oftentimes religion. You know, the, the rights that Heath is talking about as emanating from our declaration didn't come out of nowhere. They came out of a distinct Anglo common law culture, going back to John Selden, Fortescue, mm -hmm. Blackstone, and various other 17th century common lawyers. Um, obviously, John Locke fits into that, of course, but he was but he was also part of that Anglo tradition, okay? So these rights didn't come from anywhere. They came from a distinct Anglo uh, Protestant tradition. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's let's stipulate that. I mean, go back to the to the original nation. I mean, my friend Yoram Hazoni wrote a brilliant book. Uh, I guess it was 2018 last year about the virtue of nationalism, talking about how the original nation, biblical Israel, um, of course, uh, they were not like united by kind of like these like lofty enlightenment values. They were united by religion and customs and traits and all these kind of other more concrete, tangible factors that have always been understood throughout the entire course of human history as. Uh, forming tribes and ultimately forming nations. Of course, the progression from tribes to nations also kind of going back to biblical Israel, of course. Um, as far as... Um, uh, crap, what else were we talking about? <laughs> what else were we talking <laughs> about? So culture, where, where is, is... From the cultural perspective of nationalism, is that something that that the government is oh, dictating yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, or is okay. it... Where does it come in yes. communities? Thank you. Okay. Um, look, so two things can be true here at once, obviously, as is often the case, okay? Um... Tocqueville, of course, had it right when he kind of waxed poetic about all the mediating institutions of society, the various buffers that were, have always been understood um, to separate the individual from government. Mm -hmm. um, man, man, from my perspective, my reading of human history, my reading of philosophy, and indeed just my observations about the world, I don't think that atomistic, Ayn Randian individualism is natural. I think that man is tribal and communitarian by nature. And it is in these pockets of communities that we are primarily responsible for preserving a culture and inculcating the virtues from generation to generation that ultimately sustain a republic. Having said that, the role of government fundamentally is not 
purely to secure negative liberty. There is a role for government. This is, I think, the fundamental disagreement of perhaps of all fundamental disagreements. There is a role for government in pursuing justice properly understood. Aristotle says in, 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 in his politics, he says, he is almost a direct quote, not, not quite, mm -hmm. but he says, government exists for the sake of the good life, not for the sake of life itself. Okay, that's that's from, that's from Aristotle. Okay, like uh, a, lot, a lot a lot of kind of uh, more libertarian minded conservatives today point to Aristotle as kind of being this beacon of individualism in contrast to Plato's Republic, which is obviously a little bit more collectivist. But Aristotle himself talked about how the purpose of government is not just to secure life qua life, but to pursue a certain vision of the good. So there is a role for government. There is there is a, the the primary task, of course, is 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 in the culture with the families, etc. But you know, uh, my boss's late um, mentor, Andrew Breitbart, famously said that politics is downstream of culture. And it, it, that's definitely true to an extent. Mm -hmm. But it, but but the but the arrow very clearly in my mind goes both ways. Okay, culture can be downstream of politics. It absolutely can be. There are it, there are countless examples going back thousands of years, of looking at government of governments passing laws and then the culture learning to abide by those laws and then actually accepting them as morally legitimate and then passing those. Those values. I mean, even you could argue Roe v. Wade and some of these other things are literally the the government dictating and then culture just kind of normalizes this and catches up yes. to it over yeah. time. I mean, I think the left is much more effective at using government to yes. actually slowly push the change in culture and the transgenderism, which we've talked about and, and talked to both of you about before and stuff like this. I mean, on these core social issues, Democrats do a good job of saying even if they're not ready for it, we're going to put it there, and then they're just going to kind of catch up with it and be okay with it. So there's a, a impact that it, it doesn't have to come afterwards; it can come before. Heath. No, I mean, I, I think that's I think that's well stated, Josh. And I guess I guess maybe the only thing that I would add is I think that conservatives might be better served, and and this is a point where we we might disagree. I think conservatives might be better served than inst rather than trying to do the same thing and use the government to affect those downstream that downstream culture to the extent that it does i think we're better served making the argument that that should never happen that we shouldn't we shouldn't use the government for those the, for those reasons and instead of engaging in the same tactic that the left engages in making a principled argument about we we should never do that and when if left when you get in power and do that we're going to argue it against it on principled grounds rather as opposed to we just think that we we have a different conception of the good than that yeah, I mean, that sounds a lot to me like if we identify the opponents as a revengeous hegemonic foe that wants to add us in the public square and sometimes literally tax our churches, synagogues, and oftentimes leading up to uh, violence in the streets against that threat, it sounds to me like Heath's proposed remedy is unilateral disengagement and disarmament. And um, that simply is just not the proper remedy for a left that is not just seeking, again, to wield the levers of political power, but is seeking to dominate us culturally from the uh, from the academy to the media to the Fortune 500. Luke, when I was in Big Law at Kirkland and Ellis, okay, um, Kirkland and Ellis was involved in uh, LGBT litigation. They helped, I think, fund like Obergefell or something like Probably. that. Okay, yeah. yes. So I remember when I was when I was an attorney there, there was some like gay pride, like wear purple. I think was the color. Um, like and like, obviously, I didn't wear purple, um, but like, I was like, I I I, I talked with some some conservative Baptist and Mormon friends. It's oppressive, like to work in a in an iconic institution, a private institution, a a, a law firm, a, a a bank. It is culturally oppressive nowadays if you are someone of faith of mm -hmm. traditional values, etc. 
that is the broader thing we are that we are up against. And to just kind of sit back and preach neutral procedural liberalism as a as as, as a proposed remedy. Um, to me is just a fundamental misreading of the nature of our foe and the threats we are up against. But I just, ahead, one yeah. last point on that. I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say neutral principle liberalism is valueless, right? I think, I think, I think our constitution, the structure of our constitution, the rights that it defends, the, the ability of people to think freely is itself a moral value. Freedom, human liberty that is a commitment to those things. Is a commitment to a certain value set. It's not just, oh well, we're in, we're 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 indifferent. I mean, right? I mean, we we commit to the ability of people to 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 live their lives and develop their communities, and we think that that, or at least at least I think at least that has moral value. It's not just sort of, I don't really care. Um, I want to, as I've been thinking, and you mentioned Bill Crystal and others. Like, I think as I've been thinking about the people who are daily critical of our president. And I like, I said this already at the beginning that I like the fact that none of us were Trump supporters in 2016, right? So there's definitely kind of a divergence that's happened amongst individuals who were not excited or supportive of President Trump in 2016. Um, Why is the focus on Trump. And I know I brought up John Cornyn as a good example, right? So it just seems to me that the individuals, that there's a lot of firepower right at Donald Trump. And then a lot of people who have been in politics for a lot longer than Donald Trump and have been basically seeding ground on these principles for a long time weren't opposed. I mean, I remember first time I heard Bill Crystal speak was at a Young America's Foundation conference. I was 17 years old and I went there, Texas Right to Life, had this like scholarship and I wrote a paper and then I go to DC and I hear Bill Crystal. And not once did Bill Crystal rail against Republicans as the primary problem and seeding our principles and throwing away our values and all this different stuff. And, you know, this is in 2000 and Eight, two 2007. And so at that point, I mean, you go to the fact that Republicans were spending a lot of money. Republicans were growing government. This was not like a new trend. And then I see these individuals just flip a switch. And all of a sudden, it's like the biggest threat to conservatives is the president. Not, and it's not a whole hearted, uh, you know, advocacy against the Republican Party. So what makes him the primary problem. And maybe he's not the primary problem, but it seems like he is because that's where the focus is all directed. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I think it certainly there were... The fact that he has become the focus is not to absolve all of those others from the, of their sins. But at this point, it, Trump, is, Trump is the GOP. Yep. The GOP is Trump. And for many in the country, Trump is conservatism because there's a lot of conservatives out there, you know, CPAC, Matt Schlapp, a lot of voices out there who have just slapped the conservative label on Trump and, and said, this is it. This is working. We're winning. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think, and, and Republicans in Congress, Senate Republicans, I mean, that has become the litmus test of how well you're doing and, you know, how strong of a Republican you are is how often you are supporting the president, how much you are sort of behind Trump. Um, and so that, that, that's what I would say is it's just, it's a little bit just a victim of 
the conversation how it has evolved is that Trump has become the the talking point. It's like you is this conservatism? Is it not? Because this is what the Republican Party is doing right now, and it's either get on board or get out. Yeah, I mean, in, in electing Donald Trump as president of the United States, um, the, the Republican Party first nominated and the American people elected someone who did not exactly check all the boxes of conservatism as we've understood it since the middle of the 20th century, to, to again go back to Kirk and Buckley and the founding of National Review and all of that, okay? So it has caused Americans, I think, that's what the whole point of this conversation we're having today, is to think, I think, a lot about what it means to be a conservative. And I think these are generally healthy debates. They are mm -hmm. necessary conversations to have um, as we try to steer our way forward. But as far as why Trump himself uh, is the focus of conversation, it's because he's Donald Trump. I mean, like he literally <laughs> yeah. has, again, the, the name ID globally of like a Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan. He had that name ID before he was even president. Yep. I mean, look at his Twitter account. I mean, like every time he tweets, everyone talks about it just because of sheer brute force of personality. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So like that, that I think is why we're talking about him. It's not because – obviously there are some people – I, I can like name names who like think that Donald Trump is like synonymous with conservatism. That has never been my stance. I don't want yep. any of the listeners of this podcast to think that's my stance. My boss likes to have this good Trump, bad Trump dichotomy. That is certainly the way that I like to think I do my job. Um, so I, 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 I do not apologize for everything Donald Trump does. I don't think a lot of conservatives do. There actually, there obviously are some, but I don't think that's, I don't think it's as ubiquitous as he seems to think it is. So is the reason, and Josh, I'm asking you this, you're going to answer, I guess the question for, for me, but is the reason that you and I, maybe we're on the same, are less critical of the president is because the threat that we see and the enemy we see is somebody who he's attacking significantly, right? So does, is it is that the difference? Meaning the end? It's it's the idea that if we're all going against the same foe, right? And it's the radical left and it's the degradation of society and it's socialism and it's all these different, you know, political correct culture is the idea that, look, this is not only the head of the Republican Party, but he's actually probably one of the loudest critics of all these things that are a threat to society. Does that make sense? Is is that because when I when I try to think of why, uh, why am why, what do I find problematic when I, you know read mm -hmm. what Heath says, other people, like, what is it about that? I'm a principled guy. I, you know, care about all these things. And by the way, I'm critical of Republicans a lot, right? I mean, anybody listening to this in Texas politics is like, what's this guy doing? Like, this guy's telling us all we're bad all the time. So I'm all about <laughs> criticizing people who are legitimately bad on policy and disagreeing on policy. And I think Chip Roy yeah. has done that, but he's not also going after Trump. So what is what is it? And I'm trying to figure, I guess it's hard to get that one thing, but I'm wondering if that's the thing. Is it the thing that when we look at the biggest enemy, we go, we're all fighting that guy. So yeah. if you're wondering why I'm not going after this person, it's because we're all fighting this guy. To me, when when I go after Republicans, it's when I feel like they're not fighting the same guy I'm fighting. When they're not, I don't know what we're fighting for. To that extent, I, I kind of understand when you say where your frustration is. Yeah, so that's, that, that is absolutely a huge part of it. I mean, look what the left did during the Brett Kavanaugh fiasco, okay? They threw out 5,000-plus years of civilizational norms, not just courtroom legal norms, but civilizational norms pertaining to innocent until proven guilty. It, yep. Looking at what happened there and batting an, and just thinking for a second about handing the levers of political power to these people— 
is a thought experiment that makes me want to cry into my pillow at night. Um, so the nature of the left, I think, has just gotten just so incredibly radical. Look at what the 2020 Democrats are talking during these presidential debates, which mm-hmm. no one probably watches these debates. I have to for my job. But these people are, are <laughs> they, these people are out of their freaking mind. They're, they're talking about the leading intellectual discussions among the 2020 Democrats are A, whether we should include not a public but a private option for health insurance or just go or or or, or just, just abol- take away or, private or, options or, or, for or, or, everybody or just abolish private health insurance entirely yeah. and second whether we should like keep illegal or to legalize illegal immigration i don't even know what that, i don't even know what yeah. that means but like decriminalize illegal border crossings yeah. i guess yeah, right? yeah basically literally eliminate the yes, border yes yes right? those are like that is who we're up against okay is people who legitimately are trying to throw out innocent proven guilty destroy your borders and ultimately in many ways as we as we already discussed a little bit in this podcast ultimately destroy our way of lives if not us ourselves so, so i i like saying and i'm gonna let you come in and he, he sure. here just like i like uh i feel like the left is making your like super conservative southern baptist uncle a very accurate prophet you know when he's like look they're gonna come out that lgbt people they're gonna come for your kids and you're like hey settle down you're like um yes they are and they're like it's open borders and you're like that's a little bit hyperbolic you're like no it's not stuff the hyperbolic stuff they're gonna take my guns yes i'm gonna take your guns you're like okay you're (laughs) like you're making the guy who everyone used to say this guy's yeah. He's a little crazy, and you're like, no, actually, he wants he's, to buy them he's back. He's like a prophet. Out he's like option. the Amaya. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Heath, here's to, to that point, and maybe you disagree with his characterization. So please feel free to. I don't want to. I don't want to mischaracterize you. But it seems like that you see those that group, and I know that's why I started with the with the question as less of a threat than uh, than. Donald Trump. And when I say that, I mean, you know, people say where your money is, there your heart is also. And like the, the, the things we spend our time talking about and discussing and championing and those things really rise to the level of this is the most important thing, right? So do you think that he is a bigger threat than them? And if so, why? And if not, then is that reflected? I mean, I guess what I would say is I, I recognize them, but it's unquestionably. Yes. I, I think because I don't think the you left disagree is a with any of our yeah, policy don't disagree. Positions. Don't, don't, don't disagree with so that. Why? I think it's a difference of perspective of just how I come to politics and how I come to political engagement and, and just my frame of reference. I am much more animated by what I'm for and, and what I believe rather as opposed to just what I'm out there champ- championing against. Um, Look, you got to have both of those, right? Politics is about beating other people. It's a zero-sum game. But what really energizes me, what what caused me to create principles first was what is it that we are for as conservatives? And that's why what I see as threats are the people that are talking to my group of fellow conservatives with something that I don't recognize. And that, to me, feels... For someone who is engaged about... Hey, I'm I'm concerned about what my team is for, not about what my team is against. If, if people are coming in and sort of trying to co-op what my team is for, I'm going to find that but to was, be a more immediate. So, so this is why I go back to that. Was so did George W. Bush do a more consistent job, in your opinion, on defining what we were for than Donald Trump did for Republicans? Well, I certainly. Th- I mean, he was he, he had compassionate conservatism, and I think he identified or he articulated at least American values in a foreign policy that. You know, we now recognize was pretty flawed, but at least it was something you could buy when you when you bought into Bush, you bought into, you know, 
pro democracy, combating terrorism. You, you, you had to be, you know, you could be upset about Medicare Part D and No Child Left Behind and all that. And and no no president, I guess, before Trump has been above reproach, right? Well, I understand that, but I'm saying like even when you go through that list with George W. Bush, I mean, that's basically I'm going to expand government in every single one of these areas of your life, and I'm going to be pro life in that we're not going to fund abortions. And, you know, but but that's why I'm trying to figure out what happened with Trump that all of a sudden he became this the issue, because it seems like that issue would have existed. Everybody had their issues. I mean, McCain ran for president and then voted to keep Obamacare. I mean, that's like major problem of walking away from Republican orthodoxy. So you go, wait a second. So but I don't I don't remember these same people just railing against McCain. And I'm trying to understand. In fact, I think a lot of them have even been okay with McCain's actions because they was very highly critical of Trump post his election. And that, to me, is very strange from a principal's perspective. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I and I and I don't think I'm here making excuses for for George W. Bush's heresies against conservatism yeah. as as I would have seen them. I wasn't I wasn't an active yeah, grassroots yeah, yeah. conservative We're at that point. But all in middle school. What I would say is. I, I, I think the culture. But, but he was conservative because he, he was in middle school. He was a published he was writer. Columns, all of these you know, things. he was he was awesome. Okay, go ahead. But I I would just say I think that the culture of grassroots conservative conservatism under Trump has changed in an alarming way, where where we're not talking about the things we agree with and the things we disagree with. We are in this room, obviously. We're having that conversation but you so, here. But you think that. So you're saying that conversation was happening robustly under 2010. It was happening. It was happening at the Tea Parties between the Tea Party and the establishment. I mean, there were there were constantly conversations about what counts as 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 conservatism, yes. and and I think largely the actions of the Republican Party were graded on that basis. That's why I think it's important to have something that isn't a person or a politician be the rubric, because it holds those politicians mm-hmm. accountable once they're in office. If we don't have a set of principles that maybe to your point, Josh, we're not all going to agree on, but we're at least talking about principles instead of, what well, are you for Trump or against Trump? That, to me, is the problem. If, if, if What it means to be a Republican is, if you're for Trump or if you're against Trump, uh, then, then that, I think, sort of confuses the very essence of what it is that attracted me to the conservative movement to begin with. Josh? Yeah, I just feel like Heath and I live in different universes. I, 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 I do not view... The conversation. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Obviously, too much time as we as we all probably do. That <laughs> horrific website. I, you know, I, I read all like the conservative intellectual publications. Yep. Your, your first things of the world. The debate for, is is not Trump or anti-Trump. The debate is what it means to be a conservative. The, yep. the Amari French debate has uh, overtures of Trump versus anti-Trump, but it is, it, it, it is fundamentally an intellectual discussion as to like what it means to be a conservative. Yeah, I, I guess this is my question, John, because I, I agree. That is a great conversation. Those are kind of, if we can have Amari French conversations around the party, and then that was baking into our political apparatus for the Republican Party, that would be great. I don't see that happening. I see Amari French as a like an ivory tower discussion um, it, it, that are happening in rooms like this, but that are not ultimately resulting in any kind of effect on the Republican Party. So, so do you think those? Do you think? I guess it's a question. Do you think that conversation is part of the Republican political conversation, or do you think it's just sort of a, an intellectual conversation among people who identify as conservatives? I think that it is both. 
Um, More generally, I think that what the median American and proverbial flyover country sees in the year 2019 is that their country fundamentally is being lost. They Mm -hmm. think that their culture is being torn asunder, that we are losing any kind of common sense of national solidarity or cohesion. We are Mm -hmm. losing any kind of... We're quite literally losing a common language, actually, if you look at kind of uh, the increasingly race, especially in border states like Texas, of middle schoolers and high schoolers who are not speaking English, of course. But... um, they fundamentally see the left as trying to destroy our way of life. And Trump, for all his flaws, has positioned himself very well as an avatar, as a, as a, as a symbol of a vision of America that has just been lost. It's been lost for any number of reasons, of course. Uh, you know, I mean, like neoliberalism, honestly, and uh, if you want to call it globalism, I don't really like that term. You can call it that if you want to. That, 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 that is part of it. And I'm a free trade guy, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm a, I, I support free trade. But there are a lot of towns that were forgotten in the Rust Belt until Trump came and campaigned there. And he, he positioned himself very nicely as the avatar who would stand for the American flag, who would criticize, like, anti-American, like, self-hating cowards like Colin, Colin Kaepernick. And he, he he has done a very, very good job of mm-hmm. fighting the left, at least rhetorically, not always substantively. Again, of course, the deficits. In- yeah, and even with Brett Kavanaugh, you know, I think the question exists how many of the Republican nominees would have actually stuck with yes. Kavanaugh all the way through that confirmation Absolutely. when the left really pours in. And I think there is a definitely a reaction to the ability to defend somebody who's defending you and that's a it, it, it's definitely a um a perspective in the idea that I, I think that's kind of the question is 10 years from now 20 years from now are we going to look back and say man conservatives really should have held stronger on free trade or are we going to say conservatives should have recognized sooner the battle that we were in and engaged more aggressively and and then more aggressively, then you go, is it rights? Is it Amariism? Is it Frenchism? But both, I don't think there's a dis, I don't think you have to disengage to say we have to protect our rights. And oh, by the way, we have to engage in the culture on all these different issues. And so, and I know that's one of the things, mm-hmm. I guess, your column that will have already come out, but has not come out yet. <laughs> we'll bring another point to that point. But Heath, I want both of you to have some closing statements and then yeah, go ahead. Sure. No, I mean, I think that is a, that is a great thought exercise to, to ask that question of like, you know, and I think, I even probably think that the, the, the answer is recognizing the threat on the left. I think we're probably going to want to say we, sh- we should be standing as strongly against the, the people who completely reject conservative philosophy and don't care about it at all from, from, from taking, taking control of the reins of government. But I, I just I, – I'm a little bit I, – I think Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz would have been just as forceful as, at, at, at pushing against the left – uh, had they been in government, and I don't think that we would have. I mean, certainly we would have had a debate about what Marco or Ted did as 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 conservatives. But did Marco just come out with an op-ed about He's redefining capitalism? Redefine. I mean, and 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 Marco is is changing. He's changed, and I think he's. And, and I think folks are looking past Trump to see, okay, where do I need to be? And I mean, I I, I don't I don't know how. My, my my only point in bringing that up, I mean, is just the that's gets to. What I'm trying to figure out is why Trump's the like one that gets all the criticism Thanks, yeah. and the idea that, I mean, Marco basically aligned himself with the Tucker Carlson, began to align himself in the Tucker Carlson, new capitalism, you know, reimagined line. And so, I mean, when you see that, does that take him immediately basically saying this guy is also part of the major problem to I, the level of Trump I, is? I mean, I haven't been a big fan of, of his of his 
redefinition, the speech on economic nationalism that he recently came out with. I, I wasn't, I don't agree with it. <laughs> and so um, I, I'm, I'm interested to hear what he continues to have to say. I think he's, at least he's engaging in it thoughtfully. Um, and, and there's points there to rebut and we can talk about the ideas, but he's not just kind of getting up there and, and yep. lying about things. And, and, yep. and so that's, I, that is, I guess, the essence of, of So I'll the stop difference. interrupting you now. Now you can have your closing statement. Okay, go ahead. Uh, sure. So, I, I mean, I, I think this has been a great discussion. I want to thank uh, Luke, both you and Josh, uh, for this is exactly the kinds of conversations that I think conservatives need to be having. And if we were having these conversations and, and, and Trump supporters and, and, and Trump were having these conversations, it would be, I, I, it would be great. And, and I would feel at home in that party. I feel like we, we've, we've raised a lot of good issues. But, I, but in closing, I would, just, I, I would just say that I think it's important, one, that as conservatives, we think about what we're for, uh, as well as what we're against. But I think it's important to be defined by what we are for and what those principles are that we can commit to, that we believe in, external to the politicians that we that we vote for. Because ultimately, those politicians represent us, and they represent those principles. And if we don't have a set of ideas that we are we are committing to and can hold them accountable to then all they all, all, all they th there's no limit on what they can do as, as as president or once they get in office because uh you know they're wearing the right jersey and they're and they're you know no one's going to question their support for them so long as they have the r next to their name and that is something that i don't want the the republican party to to fall into that trap um i i like uh you know i'm i still believe that i'm a republican i haven't deregistered because i, I have hope that conservatives grassroots conservatives feel that, believe that, and, and want to recommit to those principles. And uh, just thank you both for, for being engaged in that fight. Josh. Yeah, I, I, I just want to conclude by just re reiterating how utterly baffling I find it that someone of decent intelligence like Heath can survey the current political landscape and legitimately think it's a close call as to what is the biggest threat facing conservatives between what it means to be conservative and a left that, again, is basically trying to kill us. That is a threat. That is, so I, I I think the people on Heath's side, this you know, this so-called principled principles first project or whatever, it's a fundamental misreading of history, is what it is. It, it, it is a misreading of the current nature of the threat and what we are up against. And you know, uh, unlike Heath, I've actually been like a very conservative person my entire life. Okay. I mean I I I, I was a again like a hardcore Ted Cruz supporter. I have I, I have never had any problem whatsoever criticizing establishment Republicans, squishes of, of any variety. It is very important for us to hold ourselves to a line. We can debate what the rubric is and what that line is. We can discuss principles and all that. It is also important at a moment like this, barely over a year after the left tried to savage Brett Kavanaugh, a good and decent man, by distorting five to 6,000 years of civilizational norms pertaining to innocent until proven guilty, it's important to recognize the nature of the threat we're up against. and. Sometimes the latter, even though it's less perhaps intellectually lofty, is actually more important than the former. So in 2020, I am very happily going to pull the letter for Donald Trump. I've written numerous yeah. columns explaining why. And I, I'm actually very excited to do so. And it's not just because, to clarify, of the nature of the left. It's because he's actually go governed exactly as he said he would. And in many ways, that is a profoundly conservative form of governance. In many ways, it's not deficits in immigration, but he has actually been very conservative on a lot of issues. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I criticize him when I feel the need to, but I am very excited to support Donald Trump in 2020. I know we, uh, we talk, we've talked a lot about kind of where we are today, right? And the, uh, there was a quote 
that I remembered from Lord of the Rings, if either of y'all have uh, have watched that film. But there's this scene where uh, Frodo is talking to Gandalf, and you know he's got the ring and he's got all these problems, and they're trying to like save the world. And he tells Gandalf, he goes, you know, I I wish I hadn't lived in such a time. And Gandalf says, uh, well, so do I, and so to so do all who live to see such times. But it's not for them to decide. All it is for them to decide is what they do with the time they're given. And, um, you know, I think that we're in a, a, a place in time in history where there are unprecedented battles. And I think that the reality is that 10, 20, 30 years from now, I don't know the America that our children are going to be, you know, adults in, um, and that we will be still, you know, more, more senior adults in at that time, or I don't get 30 years from now, but, um, but yeah, uh, thank you for participating in the discussion. And, uh, I'm very grateful for both of your time. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much for watching this video through in its entirety. If you're somebody who's been following on with the conversations and the commentary that we've been producing here, we're going to ask you to do a couple quick things. Go to LukeMacias.com. You can give us your email and sign up. We will email you new com uh, content commentary conversations as we produce it. Also, you can, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, you can like our page, follow our page, or subscribe to our YouTube channel. This will just continue to ensure that when we produce content, it gets to you uh, more easily. Thank you so much for continuing to support the conversations we're producing. God bless you. God bless Texas. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messias Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. One, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Two, visit LukeMessias.com and sign up for our email alerts. And three, follow Raz and I on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Luke Messias Texas. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Luke Macias, Texas. Thank you so much and God bless.